Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, guys, and welcome back to Medicus. Today, we are joined by Teresa Vaslock, who is a fourth-year medical student at Loyola Strict School of Medicine and is going into plastics and reconstructive surgery. We're very excited to have her share her journey into medicine and give you some tips and advice about applying into this competitive field. So hi, Teresa. Welcome. Happy you're joining us. Can you introduce yourself, touching on your journey to medicine, you know, how you got here? Hey, everybody. Um, I'm Teresa Veslock. I'm an M4 at Loyola. I'm getting ready to graduate in about two months. A little nerve wracking, but exciting. And I applied and matched into plastic and reconstructive surgery at Rush. So I'm very excited to be staying in Chicago for that. Yeah. So my journey to medicine was a little bit unconventional. I went to Loyola University Chicago for undergrad and I studied Spanish literature. So During undergrad, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I did have an inkling I wanted to apply to medical school. I didn't really know how to get mentorship or really know what I was doing at all. So, you know, once I graduated, I realized that I would probably need to do something to make my application more competitive. So Mm -hmm. I ended up getting a master's degree from Rush, actually, in biotechnology. And After that, I got a position in the biomechanics and tribology laboratories at Rush. It's in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. So that was kind of my first introduction to surgery Mm -hmm. in general. And after that, I got into Loyola and sort of the rest is history. Four years have gone by in a flash and I discovered plastic surgery, I think during my second year of medical school, but it's been quite a wild ride. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you did have an unconventional path. Although I do think it's becoming a little bit more traditional for people to take some time off and kind of discover what they want to do, not just jumping into med school, because that's what they ought to do. It also sounded like maybe you're the first one in your family to go into medicine. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm the first soon to be doctor in my Mm -hmm. family. My mom was actually a nurse and my dad is a scrub tech. So I'm from a medical family, um, but the first one to pursue medical school. Yeah. And that journey is definitely different and not having, you know, someone there to guide you. It can be kind of difficult sometimes finding the right mentors, but you clearly did. So can you take us through your decision to pursue plastics and reconstructive surgery? What drew you into that field? Sure. So when I was at Rush doing my master's, I became really interested in orthopedic surgery mm-hmm. and biomechanics. And I came to medical school thinking that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I felt pretty strongly about that through first year and into second year. But then I shadowed a breast surgeon, like an oncologic breast surgeon. And I totally fell in love with that patient population and that pathology. And I just felt really connected to breast cancer patients and wanted to be more involved in that. So, you know, I went kind of from ortho to thinking maybe I'll do general surgery with a breast surgery fellowship. And then I kind of stumbled upon plastic surgery. I Mm -hmm. did some shadowing and 
you know, I think like most people, I didn't really have a great grasp of what plastic and reconstructive surgeons do. Yeah. So it never really even occurred to me. And then, you know, when I did start learning about plastics, I realized that it has elements of all of these different specialties that I'm Mm -hmm. interested in. You know, there's some ortho, there's some breast surgery, and there's everything in between. And Mm -hmm. there's an incredible amount of variety. So I think the thing that draws me to it the most is the fact that it has all of the elements that I like from essentially every specialty. There's an immense amount of collaboration. So we're working with every subspecialty under the sun from neurosurgery to orthopedic surgery to oncologic surgery, colorectal surgery, really everything. And I love that variety about it. Yeah, that's super cool. And I think, I mean, so the specialty itself gets shorthanded into plastics, but yeah, it's like that other part, the reconstructive surgery that people I think do forget about. They're like, oh, you're going to be a plastic surgeon. You know, you'll be a doing boob jobs and yeah. whatever <laughs> people, yeah, facelifts. But yeah, you forget about the fact that there are people who go through really traumatic events and need surgeons who are able to essentially give them their life back. So that's really, really cool. Is there anything you dislike about your field? Honestly, you know, at this point, no, I think that maybe the surgeries that I don't enjoy as much are just the ones where I'm not able to be as involved you know, mm-hmm. for example, if they're doing a free flap under the microscope for 12 hours or something like that, there isn't much I can do as a medical student until the very end. Maybe I'm helping close a big, you know, incision site, but the really, really technical things, I'm not skilled enough yet to be useful. So those are the most exciting as a medical student. But I have a feeling that as soon as I do get to switch spots and be the resident, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to love that stuff. Yeah, for sure. To your point about kind of the misconception about plastic surgery just being, you know, cosmetic stuff. Honestly, like the vast majority of our training in residency is reconstructive surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a somewhat small cosmetic component and some programs have more than others, but the vast majority is reconstruction. So everything from really any kind of defect, if you will, Mm -hmm. abnormality, whether that's congenital due to an injury, trauma due to some sort of disease or infection, we are trying to first and foremost, improve function for people. And then also form, you know, in addition to improving the ability for someone to use their hand again, or for them to be able to open their mouth or open their eyes or, you know, whatever it may be that we're fixing function is usually the primary goal. Mm -hmm. But then also we are I say we, I'm I'm not quite there yet. I just match, but I I don't know if I can claim we yet. But also, you know, there's a very specific skill set that plastic surgeons learn that helps them restore form. So bringing something back to the natural state. So if someone's Mm -hmm. born with some sort of congenital abnormality to bring them to anatomical normal, if you Mm -hmm. will, in the case of cosmetics, maybe even enhance. Um, If someone is extremely unhappy with the appearance of their nose and they hate the way they look and it, mm-hmm. it makes them upset and they hate what's yeah. in you know, that too can be very valuable. So I, I don't want to minimize the benefits of that cosmetic surgery can have because um, I think it really can change people's lives for the better as well. But yeah, there's a whole, a whole lot more to plastic and reconstructive surgery other than the cosmetic stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I think people do forget that 
it's not all just, you know, oh, you're being shallow, you need this and that done. It does affect the way that you feel about yourself and the way that you feel the world perceives you. And so especially, you know, when you're talking about the reconstructive aspect and making sure you're not solely focused on the function, which obviously should be the primary goal. But yes, allowing these people to go back into the world and being able to accept themselves. That's so important. I I really love that. So you did mention that you were interested in ortho from the very beginning, just because of your exposure after undergrad. How did you kind of decide between the two fields? Did you do an ortho rotation maybe or anything like that? I didn't do an, an actual ortho rotation. I did a lot of shadowing. Sure. And there are a lot of aspects of orthopedic surgery that I like, mm-hmm. but there were also some that I wasn't crazy about. There's a lot of different things about ortho that it just didn't click with me. I didn't yeah. vibe and it didn't seem like this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. Whereas plastics, every single procedure I see, I get more excited and fall more in love with the specialty. So it just was a much more natural fit. And I foresee myself probably staying in a city Mm -hmm. like Chicago. And one of the things about certain specialties like orthopedics, for example, if you're in a big city, most people I think do a fellowship and subspecialize. If you're going to get your knee replaced, for example, or get a spine surgery, you're going to want to go to somebody who like that Mm -hmm. is their thing. Right. And I don't really want to do something, at least at this point in my life, I don't think I want to have a job where I'm doing a lot of the same surgeries over and over again. I want to maintain some semblance of variety, which is another reason I really like plastic surgery because, you know, one day you might be doing a free flap to cover someone's open wide leg that they Mm -hmm. suffered in some sort of horrible motor vehicle accident. Sure. The next day you might be doing a breast reconstruction. The day after that, you might be closing, you know, a sacral wound on a paraplegic veteran Mm -hmm. at the VA. And then another day you might be doing some Botox and fillers. Like (laughs) you can really really, um, have it all, I think. And Maybe I will decide to do a fellowship. Um, I probably will, but yeah. I still hope that I can maintain some of that variety. I love being able to operate from head to toe on patients of all ages. I just love that about the specialty. Yeah, that's super cool. And it kind of brings to mind another couple of questions I have personally about the specialty. So do people usually go into a fellowship and are the fellowships mainly like you'd be focused on a specific body part, perhaps that you get good at? And then do you have to do a separate fellowship if you're working with the pediatric population? How does that kind of all work? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know the exact percentage of people that go into an academic fellowship um, versus just going into private practice. But my exposure is somewhat limited because, you know, I'm in Chicago and I think that's sort of a a hotbed for academic plastic surgery. So Mm -hmm. sort of oriented more towards that. So I don't know if really like the people around me are necessarily representative of the rest Mm -hmm. of the country, but after plastic surgery residency, some of the fellowships that you can do are hand surgery. Some of those also have like a peripheral nerve um, Mm -hmm. component, craniofacial surgery, which is also, I think, I'm not sure if they're always combined with pediatrics, but craniofacial, I think implies pediatric plastic surgery as well. Sure. Um, so that's its own fellowship to learn about, you know, pediatric craniofacial anomalies, mm-hmm. everything. I think the most common things people think of are like cleft lip and cleft yeah. palate, stuff like that. There's microsurgery fellowships. So microsurgery is 
essentially its basis is the anastomosis of small vessels and coaptation of nerves. So if you are transferring a piece of tissue from one part of the body to another, essentially what a free flap is, Mm -hmm. you need to reconnect the vessels or connect the vessels to a new place. And in order to do so, you need to operate under a microscope. And I think of all of the different fellowships, you come out pretty proficient for most residency programs Mm -hmm. in microsurgery, but that's one that I know people often do um, as a way to be, you know, more competitive in the job market. Sure. And there's also a lot of new gender affirmation surgery fellowships popping up. That's a rapidly growing subset of plastic surgery, which is super awesome and exciting. Mm -hmm. So that's its own thing altogether. And I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but those are the big ones that come to mind. Yeah. It's a huge variety. Yeah. So really like some of the things that relate plastic surgery to orthopedic surgery is hands, you know, everything from the distal radius Uh, to the tips of the fingers, plastic surgeons are often the ones operating. If you do plastic surgery residency or orthopedic surgery, you can ultimately do hand surgery as your, you know, final career from either one of those residents. Oh, interesting. I don't think many people know that. (laughs) Yeah. So hand surgeons can be plastic surgery trained or orthopedic surgery trained. And I think another thing that people probably don't associate with plastic surgery too often is facial trauma. So, you know, if if somebody has a a bunch of fractures in their face or they got in a car accident or they fell off their skateboard or something like that, and they come into the emergency room, depending on the hospital they go to and who takes call. And, you know, if that hospital has residents, that patient could be seen potentially by a plastic surgeon by an ENT or by an oral maxillofacial surgeon. So all of those specialties can kind of share facial trauma stuff. So that's also an aspect of plastic surgery I like a lot. Yeah, that's really awesome because then you get to collaborate with people from, you know, all different fields too. For sure. How long is the training for plastic surgery? So the integrated plastic surgery route, meaning you go straight from medical school to residency, that program is six years for Mm -hmm. most places. There are some programs that are seven years. Rush actually happens to be one of them. And those seven-year programs usually have a required research year between years three and four. But six years is the standard. Another potential route you can do to become a plastic surgeon is the independent route, which is you would do a general surgery residency. Mm -hmm. And then you apply to a plastic surgery fellowship. Oh, and I see. Are, those are three years long. So the training in total would be eight years because mm-hmm. five years of gen surge and then three-year fellowship. That used to be the standard way of becoming a plastic surgeon, but those programs are, you know, there's still a lot of them that exist, but many of them are transitioning to the integrated model to make it a little bit more streamlined for people who know from the jump that they want to do plastic surgery and get right into it. Right. And I mean, my understanding is that general surgery does a lot of you're thinking of like the abdominal stuff, right? So like the kidneys and the spleens and all of that. And it seems like if you're really interested in plastic and reconstructive surgery, that's you probably don't want to spend five years doing that. hundred <laughs> percent. I, some people it's common to dual apply mm-hmm. and surgeon plastics. And that was one decision that I had to make where I was nervous, you know, am I going to match? Yeah. Should I also apply to gen surge as sort of a plan B, so to sure. speak? 
but I came to the conclusion, you know, made a pros and cons list and realized like, I would rather not match and try again next year and, you know, do a year long research fellowship or something like that than risk matching into a specialty that I'm not 100% passionate about. Five years is a really long time to be doing such a difficult job like general surgery. Correct. I respect them an incredible amount, but I am not interested in doing laparoscopic surgery. I'm not that interested (laughs) in abdominal cavities. So I'm just going to stick to the skin and the bones and the muscles. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm glad it, you know, it all worked out for you. And I'm sure it was a difficult decision just because, you know, everyone is very nervous when applying to competitive specialties about not matching and being out of a job when you have so many student loans hanging over your head. But I think you're absolutely right in that you have to decide what's right for you and how you want to spend the rest of your life. So before talking about matching into the field, I just wanted to touch on there are any stereotypes or assumptions about your specialty that you can think of other than kind of what we talked about in terms of neglecting the reconstructive part. You know, the only one that really comes to mind is the cosmetic stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think some people might, and this might just be me projecting, you know, my own insecurity. I might just be imagining what other people are thinking, but I guess my own misconceptions about plastic surgery before I really understood what it was, I would, you know, use words like shallow. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of an aggressive word, but I think people will associate it with like, oh, you make a lot of money and you give people lip filler, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that is true for many plastic surgeons and that's absolutely fine by me. That's a perfectly reasonable way to use your plastic surgery training if that's what you mm-hmm. want to do. But there's a lot more than that available when you have that skill set. And it's a really beautiful specialty. I I'm sad that more medical students aren't exposed to it. Mm -hmm. I think you really have to seek it out during medical school to get exposure. And that honestly speaks to the differences between medical schools and like the equity there because, you know, at bigger medical schools with a massive, I shouldn't say massive because none of the residency programs are massive in plastics, but like a big prolific research institution who has a big plastics program, you know, medical students will probably have more opportunities to get involved with research and be exposed. Whereas at smaller medical schools or schools that don't have a plastics residency, I imagine that there are, you know, several students each year who, if they were exposed to plastics, probably would have fell in love with it and applied but yeah. they don't get that opportunity. And we lose out on, I'm sure many, many brilliant candidates. Absolutely. I mean, and I think plastics, at least to my knowledge, is a pretty research heavy field, right? Just because like there's so much innovation constantly going on. And so you're right. Like if you're not, this is kind of like as an MD, PhD student, how I feel about our undergraduate exposure to the MD, PhD program, where like, if you don't know about it, you can't apply. And I feel like a lot of times it does tend to be those like more competitive programs, just because there's not really exposure and not all institutions are set up for it. So what did you do to make yourself a competitive applicant for matching into this field? So there's definitely, you know, many different aspects to building a competitive application for plastics or any other competitive medical residency. Research, as you mentioned, is a big one. Just having that skill set of knowing how to critically appraise literature, basic data analysis, knowing how to write up an IRB abstract paper, et cetera. 
is so important in most specialties, Mm -hmm. but especially in plastic surgery, they really, really value research. But that's not to say that the only way you can match is by having 15 publications. (laughs) Far from that. In fact, I'm probably on the lower to medium end of the spectrum relative to my peers who apply to plastic surgery. But the earlier, the better students can get involved with research. That's something that programs really value. Also, you know, obviously they really just want you to be perfect in every way, (laughs) but you know, that's not possible. So you just try your best. Obviously like high board scores are important. Step two arguably will be a a much, much more important test now that step one scores are just pass fail, strong clinical grades and evaluations. I think AOA is really great if you can get it, um, but it's not the end of the world. If you don't, I did not make AOA and I still matched into plastic surgery arguably one of the most important things, letters of recommendation for plastic surgery is huge. It's a small field. So everyone probably knows each other. (laughs) Everyone knows each other. So you're really kind of trying to strike this balance between getting a strong letter from someone who really knows you that you've spent time with that you've gotten to know and can really vouch for you. Yeah. But also someone who is relatively well-known. You know, you don't have to like seek out the most prestigious plastic surgeon in the world, but if you can at least get a couple letters or one letter or, you know, as many letters as you can from people who are pretty established, that's ideal because having good grades, having some research under your belt, all of those things they expect to be a given. None of those things are going to make you stand out. A very low score will make you stand out in a bad way, but having just like good or great across the board on the other stuff. Most people who apply to plastics all did pretty well, you know, right, right. On, their, on their exams and kind of self-evaluate being like, am I competitive enough to apply to this yeah. field? Yeah. But one of the things that I can imagine really matters to residency programs is when they have a colleague who they trust vouching for you. Sure. You know, that's everything. It, this is like, oh, someone I trained with in residency or someone that I look up to in the field or, you know, and you're reading their letter that says like, this student is excellent. You know, you right, trust right. them and, and that letter really, really matters. So I think one of the things, like one of my biggest pieces of advice to students who ask me what they can do to like match into plastics is try to develop relationships with people like long-term it's hard to find time to shadow and everything like that as best as you can just try to put yourself out there and introduce yourself and meet people and make yourself known so that you're not just showing up during the first day of your surgery clerkship third year and trying to build a rapport in that Mm -hmm. really short amount of time so that they can write you a letter in a month. And like, sometimes that happens and you just work with it and they, all these attendings, like they get it, they've been through it. They know the process and it's not always the most elegant, organic relationship. But if you can meet these people and show you're interested earlier Mm -hmm. on in medical school, that I think really valued. Yeah, that's, I think, really good advice for any field, really, that, you know, you go into make those personal connections. So obviously, aside from being personable and like, you do kind of need to be successful on your rotations. And so How do you stand out on a plastic surgery rotation among the other candidates? I mean, it's a lot of this stuff is like common sense, but I think one thing that I've always tried to do and it's sincere because, you know, I genuinely do want to be there, but it's just being positive and being present. If you are doing a one month away rotation, it's just long enough that it's going to hurt. 
but it's short enough that you can sprint the Mm -hmm. entire time. And I think that if you just get in the mindset where you're going to give it your all, you are going to be so positive and ready to go and eager to help. It's going to be noticed and it's going to be really appreciated. So, you know, anytime I have been on surgery, I'm present, you know, I'm not like buried in my phone on Instagram. (laughs) I'm like there with the team ready to go. Like, what can I do? How can I make your life easier right now? Do you want me to write some notes? Oh, I can run and go grab that. Do you want me to go do this dressing change? You know, like you obviously have to read the room. You don't want to be annoying. Like if they tell you that, no, we're good right now. Like you should yeah. go eat lunch, go eat lunch, but still like just be attentive. And some of that stuff, unfortunately can't be taught. It's like social mm-hmm. and emotional intelligence, but I think just staying positive and being there and ready to work hard at all times. It's surprisingly not everyone does that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm also really surprised that not everyone answers their emails in med school. So yeah, some things are surprising. You know, Rasa, yeah, (laughs) things that we, yeah, oh, I could say a lot about the email, but I'm just going to leave that there because you said it, you said it perfectly. Um, (laughs) One of the other things that I think is really crucial is just being really prepared for cases. That doesn't necessarily mean knowing all of the anatomy perfectly. Cause it's one of those things where like you need to sleep at some point. So maybe staying up for four hours when you get home at 10 PM, just to like burn the anatomy of the hand into your brain might not be like the best use yeah. of your time. Cause of course, you know, the one vein or the one nerve they ask you about is going to be the one that like you oh, didn't 100%. study. Right. So it's understanding that balance between like studying efficiently and effectively and figuring out what you can be mm-hmm. the expert on. So like on a surgical sub eye, you're not going to be performing the surgery, but you're going to be an mm-hmm. assistant. So being a very attentive assistant that can anticipate the needs of the team, getting really good at sewing. Cause like, that's where you sure. can shine. That's something that you can do that, you know, it's going to be your work that they're going to be able to yeah. evaluate. And another thing that you can do is be kind of an expert on the patient. I think as residents progress throughout their training, they, I don't want to speak for them, but you know, I think as you become more and more senior, you probably have to do less homework every night. There's some repetition. You're still reviewing cases and reviewing the techniques and anatomy and stuff that never goes away. But I think that as a sub I just, it's one month and you can give it your all. So I would come home around dinner time or something. And then I would study for like three hours before I would go to bed just to know that I gave it everything I could. And I would at the very least know the indication for surgery. Like why was my patient getting this surgery? What are some of the possible complications? One of the ways that I like to study anatomy relative to the surgery that I'm going to be participating in is what's the stuff you want to avoid or what's the stuff that you really need to find. And sometimes they don't get too much into the weeds with technique, you know, pimping Uh medical students, but having a basic idea of why we're for plastics, especially why we're going to use this technique versus this technique and going in with that knowledge and a super positive attitude, no complaining. (laughs) That's a big one. Don't complain at any point. Yeah. I'm not saying that you should like be disingenuous and like fake or anything, but That's something that I've noticed throughout third year and fourth year that positivity is infectious and so is negativity. So people who have a negative attitude, it's palpable and it's not pleasant for the people around them. So I think if you just make a point to just be super 
again, present and ready to work and just positive and friendly, you can't go wrong. And you're going to be remembered well by everyone that worked yeah, with you. Yeah, hundred percent. And I mean, you have to do it anyway. So, you know, you're really only hurting yourself if you're going to have a bad attitude about it. Again, these things seem like common sense, but common sense, not so common. (laughs) So in terms of choosing a residency program, you know, obviously this is a highly competitive field. And so you'll probably want to apply pretty broadly, but are there certain things that, you know, you look for in choosing a residency program for plastic and reconstructive surgery, maybe mentors, things like that? Yeah, I think going to a program where you specifically look up to certain surgeons that work there, that's a very reasonable thing to do. But, you know, obviously some institutions are more focused on some areas of plastic surgery more than others. So some places might have a really strong hand component. Some places might be heavier with trauma based on their Mm -hmm. location, or they might have a children's hospital as a part of their hospital, which is nice if you want to do craniofacial. Or, you know, like I said, there's the six year versus seven year. So if you really want to be involved with research and that's super important to you, maybe look at the seven year programs. But I think for the most part, the vast majority of plastic surgery candidates are in a position where they're probably applying to most programs, maybe not all, but I think there are 84 programs. And I think the norm is to apply to at least 60. Yeah, not that many in comparison to something like family medicine or something. Exactly. And then also, you know, one of the things that I don't think I really appreciated until somewhat recently was geography. Mm -hmm. When I first embarked on this journey, I was kind of in the mindset where like, I want to be a plastic and reconstructive surgeon and I'll do whatever I need to do to get there. Sure. I will go wherever I'm going to get the best training. Yeah. And I wanted to prioritize that when I, you know, made my rank list. And I don't know exactly what I was going to base that off. It, it, it was going to be, you know, like the doximity ranking or <laughs> the advice from mentors, like, oh, this program is better than this program. Or, But when it came down to it and I was interviewing and I was thinking about what actually matters to me, it comes down to fit yeah. and how you vibe with the people at that institution. Because at the end of the day, you know, you might be at the most prestigious place But if you're on the opposite coast from your family Mm -hmm. and your support system, you might be really miserable. Yeah. And for me, like staying in Chicago was, you know, first priority was matching. (laughs) Priority number one. (laughs) First priority was matching. So I applied very broadly. Yeah. Second priority was, I want to say it was tied between fit and being in Chicago. Sure. Because there were a couple of programs that I really, really loved. And I thought, oh, I could be so happy here. This program is fantastic. The residents and attendings are amazing. And But ultimately, I just had this gut feeling that if I had to leave my home, it would be really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, I, I have a fiance who's a graduate student at University of Chicago. And so he can't pick up and leave. Yeah. So like those things really, really matter. You need to consider, are you going to be the best version of yourself? Are you going to be fulfilled? Are you going to be a good resident and fully present Mm -hmm. for your patients and for yourself if you are heartbroken or like homesick? And I'm sure those things fade and people adjust and it's part of life, like you get over it. But I just knew for my own mental health that it would be best for me if I stayed in Chicago. So that's how I kind of prioritize those things. No, yeah, that's, I think, really good advice because 
yeah, people, I mean, obviously matching, you know, it's important, but at the same time, like you do want to be happy wherever you end up, especially because it is such a long program. It's not, you know, a three year residency where you can maybe tough it out. This is more than half a decade of commitment. So long haul. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I know your interviews were virtual. So can you comment about that? What are your feelings towards virtual interviews? And do you have any tips and tricks? I don't know if we're going to remain virtual. It's kind of up in the air, right? With how things are going. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't have anything to compare it to. I guess I interviewed in person for medical schools Mm -hmm. and that went very well for me, but it's, I think overall better in that it's just a lot more fair in terms of like the expense. Yeah. If residency interviews weren't virtual, I would probably be in like $10,000 more credit card debt for sure than I already am because many people don't have a support system that can pay for that sort of stuff. So that's huge. I think it's more equitable to have them virtually. Also the stress of travel, like yeah. I can imagine in addition to interviewing, having to like carve out two days to go fly and stay at some hotel, like that seems awful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was good overall. I think we're all pretty used to Zoom by now. Yeah. So it didn't seem too weird or unnatural. I think we all probably, or most of us probably interview better in person. So you know, maybe certain programs would have been like, oh my God, Teresa's the one if they met me in person. But I think you can still come across like your genuine self and get to know people virtually without seeing like lower than their torso. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, realistically, yes, it's nice seeing the program and the people, but how much are you really going to gain from, again, just perhaps a day? I think that's probably how you go about picking your away rotations, which you probably structure that again with geographic and program training. But yeah, I think that's probably where you'll learn best about a program that one day in person interview probably won't give you the total feel because anyone can fake it for one day and pretend they're nice. Oh, totally. (laughs) So just to wrap things up, do you have any general advice for pre-med and current medical students as they move through their training? whether they have plastics on their radar or not. Do you have any advice? I would say that if you are interested in, you know, I think most people kind of the fork in the road for young medical students is surgery versus not surgery. Mm -hmm. I would just say like, if you have met that fork in the road and you're like, I want to do surgery, then I would encourage you to explore plastic and reconstructive surgery. It's uh, the most underrated specialty, (laughs) in my opinion. No, I'm sure many people are aware of it and know how awesome it is. But I feel like, you know, most of my medical student colleagues didn't really know what plastic surgeons did. Yeah, I even encounter that um, with attendings. In every rotation I've been on, I tell attendings, you know, what I'm doing. And I always teach them something new every single time. I don't want to call it specific specialties, but a lot of different specialties just have no idea what plastic surgeons do. So shadow, explore, at least check it out, Mm -hmm. get involved early. I was hyper-focused on my grades and like studying all the time, which was the right thing to do. You know, I had a pretty steep learning curve entering medical school as someone who had been out of the game for a little while. (laughs) Um, So that was kind of the right decision for me. But if you have any time at all, Try to like dip your toes into a research project and just establish contact early on. And if you know you end up choosing something else, that's totally fine because really, like any residency program reviewing your application isn't going to care too much about the type of research you did. And 
what I mean by that is like, if you applied to plastics, but you had some ENT or ortho or vascular surgery or something research, they're not going to hold that against uh-huh. you. They're really just looking to see that you've built that skill set of like starting a project and following through yeah. and, and making it happen. So get involved early and advocate for yourself and utilize your connections is probably like one of the biggest things I can say as this specialty, especially I'm sure it's true in, in a lot of specialties, but in plastics, because it is a small world, other people are using their connections. Yeah. So you should too, like you have to meet people, get yourself out there and let people help you. Because if you don't, you're going to be left in the dust. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone else, everyone else is making connections outside of their school in their school. So just put yourself out there. And yeah, that's probably one of my biggest pieces of advice. Awesome. Thank you. So what's the best way to reach you if people have any more questions? Email is great. I suppose they could also text me, um, <laughs> but email is probably the best. And I can share that with you. I'm also on Instagram, kind of a casual personal slash academic-ish so Instagram. not a professional Instagrammer by any means. No, I, I am not a professional Instagrammer. And I feel like I should put like asterisk, these thoughts are my own or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so I'm not held accountable by my institution, but yeah, Perfect. any of those are fine. And I love mentoring. I'm super passionate about helping junior medical students. So anyone who wants to reach out, please feel free. Thank you. And yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. So Thanks again for coming on the show. It was really great chatting with you this evening. And I wish you the best of luck in residency. You're going to be amazing. Thank you so much, Rasa. This is great. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.